Stay tuned now for Byline Mendocino. And good morning. Welcome. This is Byline Mendocino. I am your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a media roundtable. We discuss local journalism and local newsmakers every other week. I think I'm on the first and third Fridays of the month from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., alternating with Joy LeClaire and Forthright Radio. So welcome. Mary Callahan reported in the Press Democrat on December 2nd that the Santa Rosa Diocese of the Catholic Church is planning to declare bankruptcy in advance of a slew of clergy abuse cases set for trial starting in April. A state law opened what was called a look-back window to allow victims of sexual abuse by the Catholic Church and other institutions to file civil lawsuits for claims that exceed the statute of limitations. So abuse that may have happened when people were children and now they're adults and and finally ready to come forward. Um, The statute of limitations was was basically um, done away with for these three years. And in these three years so far, 130 new claims have been made against the Catholic Church, uh, the Santa Rosa Diocese, by survivors. So this three-year window period ends on December 31st, uh, just over two weeks from now, and more sexual abuse claims are expected to come forward in the meantime. But the announcement about the bankruptcy is being criticized as an attempt by the church to prevent details of the abuse from coming to light and limit compensation to victims. So Mendocino County is part of the Santa Rosa Diocese. And when I read the article by Mary Callahan on December 2nd, I wondered if there was any part of this story that took place up here um, and any local churches involved and um what I found was the remarkable story of Sister Jane Kelly, and I'm sure she'll be familiar to a lot of listeners, but uh, for me, that just, she just wasn't in my, my radar about Mendocino County stories. And so I want to bring the story of Sister Jane Kelly to you today. She was a parish sister and director of religious education at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Ukiah. And she discovered in 1996 that a young priest was stealing from the church and sexually abusing young men from the parish. She spent two years trying to get the church to take action. And at the time, the Santa Rosa Diocese was run by Bishop Patrick Zeman. When her efforts failed, she turned to the local media, who published a story about Sister Jane Kelly's claims of abuse, and the priest was removed a week later. The article was published on January 22nd, 1999. It was was titled Catholic Nun Blows the Whistle. It ran on the front page of the Press Democrat and was written by none other than Mike Janella, who's in the studio with me today. And we're going to spend the hour hearing stories about Sister Jane Kelly, her extraordinary courage, the crucial role of our local media in exposing clerical abuse when the when the church refused to act. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Alicia. Thank you so much. I mean, it shouldn't maybe have been surprising to know that you were once again at the at the center of an extraordinary series of events here in Mendocino County since your your reporting over the decades is legend <laughs> <laughs> but welcome 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 to KZYX this morning so can you start by just um talking about your reaction to the bankruptcy and then we'll talk about sister Jane Kelly 
thank you. I when I read the bankruptcy story, I, I have to admit that I uh, kind of slapped the table and it angered me. It angered me because the church and the Diocese of Santa Rosa has had years, years to settle up, come to terms, deal. So for them, all this time later, to now whine and moan about possibilities of more, uh, it just seems uh, horribly unfair. And I happened by chance, but I've covered this diocese stories from the beginning. I can assure you that uh, listening to the stories of these men, mostly men, I did talk to a few women, but it was mostly men, young men. Uh, it's horrific stories. It's lifelong. It's uh, The damage is absolutely incredible what goes on here. So for them to kind of all these years later say, uh, th well, not threaten. I just, we're going to bank go into bankruptcy uh, to avoid as best possible any more financial damages. The people of this diocese, the Catholics in this diocese, they have supported this diocese forever. In St. Mary's in Ukiah, they rallied to keep the... We did not have a priest for a year in the middle of all this scandal. And Mary Lightham Thomas became the administrative person. She literally, she and the staff, ran this parish without a priest for more than a year. They dealt with the fallout from the school. I can't tell you. I, it doesn't take much to imagine how damaging this scandal was to everything, all that's good about the Catholic Church, how damaging it was. And where I think of Sister Jane and I... Um, I actually could uh, choke up a little. She's a person of remarkable intelligence, courage. She, as most of you probably know, she was instrumental, the founder of Plowshares, uh, Peace and Justice. She was on the Ukiah Planning Commission. I mean, this is an individual that it w was engaged and contributed to the community. And had it not been for her, I just don't know how long this would have gone on without any public knowledge. So start us out. When did you first meet Sister Jane Kelly? When I first moved to town, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a good old Catholic boy. And uh, when Teresa and I moved to Mendocino County in 1985, we had th three little boys and soon to another fourth boy. And... St. Mary's, of course, became the center of our spiritual life, and I got to know she and Father Gary Lombardi. They, they are probably the two finest examples of Catholic uh, spiritual people that I know. And Sister Jane, what I was taken by her was not only her community activist and her awareness, but she was a woman of remarkable intelligence, and frankly, she her knowledge of theology and the Catholic way of looking at things was as good as any priest I've ever known. 
And I remember immediately thinking, why isn't this woman a priest? Uh, so that's the kind of where she was exceptional in what she did and genuine. There, there, she, I mean, Jane could lecture. She liked lecturing. But she was authentic. She was genuine. She was out of the Vatican II era. She, she didn't leave the order. She, she gave it thought. But she stayed within the confines of the church because she believed in it. And she thought she could help make a difference. So she did, ultimately, uh, in a kind of a tragic way, but she did. Right. And so when did she come to you? You met her. When when did you meet her? Well, I met her in 1985. Okay. Um, so you knew her for over a decade before these um, allegations that yes. she was making came to light. Yes. And then this uh, the priest involved in this particular instance is Father Jorge Hume, Hume Salas. Uh, and I'm never quite sure which he went by Hume or Salas or both. Uh, but he came under kind of a mysterious circumstances and Jane was told that she, she had to be his to bring him into order to uh, to be his spiritual educator so that he could be ordained a priest like fairly quickly right very quickly out, out of the ordinary she knew intuitively she knew something was amiss there and she expressed her concerns to uh, Father Gary at the time and the bishop. And they said, no, 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 we're shortage of priests. We need Latino speaking. Uh, All of those things that one might say, well, okay, maybe we, it's okay. Mm -hmm. So she was very reluctant, but she took, she took the assignment on. And this was about 1995? About 1990, he arrived here. 1992, I see from a note of here. He arrived in 1992, and by 1995, Sister Jane had uh, worked with him for a year or so and became very suspicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, His educational thing didn't add up. His spiritual uh, awareness, the the teaching, the Catholic teachings, Mm -hmm. none of that really added up. And she increasingly was concerned about who is this guy. And then, of course, she and others in the parish begin to notice uh, expensive watches, cars, etc. And that's when she internally raised the start raising the questions the alarm and it became clear quite quickly that the bishop's office was the driving force behind this man being ordained so quickly in the process and that happened i happened to be there it was at a they used to do uh, sunday masses in the park celebratory masses at todd grove and he was ordained during this period and then a big reception for him afterwards. And I don't have to tell you that the Latino community was delighted because they had a priest, someone who could uh, culturally and langu- in language and everything be with him. So it was even, even those of us skeptics were saying, well, maybe, okay. It was that kind of scenario. Then the wild thing started unfolding, and I do you want me to 
kind of carry on or do you want to go ahead? Yeah, no. So she noticed that, like you said, the cars, the clothes, the televisions in every room, the fancy watch. And then she brought her suspicions to her higher ups within the church. And I wonder because, you know, um, we have a lot of listeners and some may be familiar with the Catholic church and some may not. Um, do you just want to explain to people how the Catholic Church hierarchy works? Like when she noticed uh, Father Hume, uh, Jorge Hume Salas, behaving strangely, and who did she have to go to in order to bring her concerns? Well, you know, the process, you know, she obviously went to the parish priest at the time, Father uh, Gary Lombardi. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Jane worked together closely, and he... Uh, he had, you know, he he knew that her concerns were real in that regard, but of course he told her to go to the diocesan office. Mm-hmm. The, the next step is that you'd go to Santa Rosa and say, uh, "I think we've got some kind of problem." So it's a, a centralized organization, the church, and and Santa. It's kind of. Controlled the, by the Santa Rosa office? The the diocesan office in Santa Rosa ultimately is in charge of all ch- Catholic churches from Petaluma to the Oregon border along the north coast. Now, while each parish finances themselves, so to speak, and like St. Mary's School, uh, so each parish has their own activity, but they are dependent and overrule overseen mm-hmm. by the diocesan office mm-hmm. in Santa Rosa and ultimately the diocesan office in Santa Rosa is in charge and period. that is the bishop who who runs that and that's the bishop of Santa Rosa yes and at the time that was this guy bishop Patrick, Patrick Zeman yes so jane took her concerns to the diocesan, diocesan office in Santa Rosa, and, and almost immediately was met with stonewalling and the lack of, and kind of a dismissal. Uh, that's very frustrating because if you know about the Catholic Church, if you are greeted with that, it's telling you quite quickly <laughs> they're not going to deal. Mm-hmm. That's it's an institutional reaction. To but, just kind of close ranks. Yes. And it's a male-only rank. Let's uh, let's be sure we understand that. Uh, this is a nun raising concerns about priests. Uh, and how receptive they are is probably subject of many and long debates. The bottom line, though, is that he act finally, thanks to the investigative work of the Ukiah Police Department, Mariano Guzman in particular, they documented that he had been taking the collections, money from the collections. He even had the bank deposit bag. He had a very kind of smooth system. For a young priest, a very smooth system. And he had been siphoning money off the church. And it was a matter of several thousand dollars. One of the stories she tells in in her book, and she wrote a book about this called taught to believe the unbelievable. Um, she talks about two older sisters who were sending $40 each in cash to the church, and he was intercepting those envelopes and taking the money out. And it was a, a, a huge amount of their 
fixed income. I mean, people who were in the parish were being victimized by this guy. Absolutely. And and not only that, there were other just dastardly <laughs> examples among them in the Latino community themselves. And now here he was there to serve them, in a sense. And uh, it was la- later learned he was charging for charging. Typically, you you contact a priest, I'd like to have my child baptized or marriage or whatever that is. And you make a contribution. People, it's routinely, you hand the priest an envelope, a gratitude, gratuity, whatever sure. it might be. <laughs> That's typical. What wasn't typical was when Sister Jane and others learned that he was had a fee schedule and he was charging those people for fees and that for religious service for religious service and that was not going in the Whoa. church coffers it was going into his uh-huh. personal and this of course isn't the worst yeah. the worst of what he was doing came later well you know here i don't know how else to say it and so let's say it he was a thief there the priest in the middle of this parish this community turned out to be a thief that's shocking enough because as you pointed out with people giving whatever they can afford to give uh, it, it was pretty shocking along the same as this is bubbling to the surface people who had been saying uh, those close who worked close to the parish of young men being seen coming and going out of the parish house where he lived. Now, we all know lots of times people see and conclude things. So obviously people were careful about that. Well, well, not what does that mean? And of course, his immediate claim was these are newly arrival young men. These were people 17, 18, 19. Newly arrived from Mexico in the culture where they're from, the small towns that they were from, the priest was the center, remained the center of the thing. So naturally they would come to the local priest for help, advice, whatever. So on the surface, you're going, well, that's part of his role. But then the stories just kept getting more and more and about alcohol in the, the rooms so-called hypnosis, whatever that may mean. Whoa. But ultimately, uh, and I I personally am aware of this because I met uh, four of these young men and there's tape recordings of them. Uh, Admittedly, I'm not fluent in Spanish, so I did have to have it translated. Uh, But I interviewed these men personally and essentially their claims was that he began to molest them. So those tapes, now things are getting really, we have a a thief, a known thief documented, and now we have these uh, allegations being made, and there are tape recordings and I am, um, I, I believe there was one other, I think KC Meadows of the Ukiah Daily mm-hmm. Journal, I'm not quite sure, 
can't quite both you know. But we interviewed the I mean uh-huh. so I And you interviewed them because Sister Jane had come to you? Well, because I'd heard about that. Ah. And she had confirmed that she had heard two had heard uh-huh. about that. Uh-huh. And so I tracked down, uh, do these tapes exist? And in fact, they did. And that's when I said, well, I want to sit down and interview these young men. And I did. Uh, Best you can, given the circumstances. The language barrier. When was this? About 1998? About 1990. uh, Yeah, somewhere in there. 1996, 1997. Uh And the young men were very nervous and apprehensive. This was a whole new world to them. And it was in America. And why am I sitting here with... A reporter, right. and it was a difficult situation for everyone. Uh, but the most astounding thing was that I called the diocese. I'll never forget. This is not one of the stories I won't forget. I called the diocese and I said, "I've interviewed these young men. There are tape recordings, and they were turned over to the church." the tape recordings, the diocese, the diocese, the bishop's office said, give us the tapes and we'll deal. People at that moment assumed give us the tapes meant that the bishop was going to go to the police with the tapes. Suddenly the tapes did not exist anymore. They denied that they had possession of them. It was... At the t- you know, we didn't really see it at the time, but what it really was from certainly the uh, St. Mary's and the Eureka Church also was experience, beginning to experience a lot of talk about Father Gary Timmons at Camp St. Michael's right. in Leggett. All this is starting to bubble now, and uh, there's just no way you couldn't really, there's something going on here. I don't think we have to kind of go into the details of all the progression here. But I can tell you that Sister Jane then did go into action that focused on Father Jorge, the the Ukiah priest, and said when she learned that he had actually been, I'm sorry, let me back up for just a moment because this is another astounding part of this. The bishop comes to Ukiah, meets with the church leaders here, the council. Bishop Zeman. Bishop Zeman, the local church board, for the lack of a better term. And I'm so hesitant to say this because, but it's history and it's what it is. At the time, we had a fine police chief by the name of Fred Keplinger. Fred Keplinger was a devoted Catholic and a member of the church. He attended that meeting with the bishop. And the bishop, quote, swore this group of people to secrecy. This is a Catholic thing. So the bishop swore them to secrecy and I will take care of it for you. He removed Jorge. The demand was you need to get this priest out of our system. So he did remove the priest from the system. What none of us knew except for those involved was that, in fact, the bishop knew all the details. So he not only removes, it goes quiet for a year, life goes, tries to get back on track. 
And Sister Jane learns that the the priest has been reassigned to a church in Napa. And that, bless her, is when she went ballistic and said, oh no, we're not doing moving around because as we all later learned, that was what they do. That was their policy, in yes, fact. was to reassign troubled priests. So he goes to Napa, Sister Jane goes public, and that's when she came to me. Ah, uh, okay. So you'd all been sworn to secrecy. Uh, I didn't know any of this right. at the time. Oh, you weren't at the meeting. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I had no... I had no knowledge of it because mm. not, none of that's secret in my life, you know. But she came to, Jane refused to go to that meeting because she intuitively knew something was going to come down that way. So she refused to go, but she had all the information, including the original police reports. So she, when she learned that he had been reassigned, that's when she called me and said, I think you and I need to have a conversation. And I went to her pl place and uh, one of those most uh, incredible moments of a very genuine, honest person looking at me and slid across the proverbial brown envelope with police reports and other various documentations, including this his so-called academic background. But she laid it all out there, and I looked at her, and I'll never forget, I said, uh, Jane, I might be able to use some of this anonymously, but I really need you to put a voice to it. That It's the only way to really make this happen. And she, without a blink, said, okay, let's do that. And then... <laughs> I do remember looking at her and saying, you know the boys are not going to be happy with this none that they already think is too liberal because of her plowshares and her peace and justice and all that. She was a remarkable woman. She had decided, she knew, and she said, I'm prepared. And literally, they shunned her. I mean, the they... The, the bishop, the archbishop, all the way up and down the ladder, 90% of the males involved in this shunned her. How dare you question wow. the priesthood? All right, let's take just a moment to remind people what we're talking about. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the Ukiah studio with veteran local reporter Mike Janella. On the heels of the story about the Santa Rosa Catholic Diocese declaring bankruptcy in, in advance of uh, 130 clergy abuse cases that are set to start going to trial in April, um, there is a, an incredible local story here uh, with Sister Jane Kelly, who was in the St. Mary's Parish in Ukiah, who was one of the earliest whistleblowers on um, abuse and particularly abuse by a young priest in the Ukiah Parish. And she came to Mike Janella in the late 90s uh, after she'd spent years trying to expose what was going on there. Uh, she went to the local press and we're right at that part of the story where she's come to you. She slid the brown envelope across the table with proof of her allegations and she's agreed to come forward 
to not make this an anonymous um, accusation, but to come forward as a whistleblower. And now she's experiencing the consequences. So let's talk about the article and what you published and um, what happened after the article was published. It is a quite a saga, an interesting saga. The uh, Bishop Zeman had a, a, a lot of stature within the Catholic hierarchy. Uh, he was well known in California. He was from a very old and prominent Southern California family. He had all the connections. No one would believe that he was engaged in any impropriety. And of course, he was a man of great charm and wit and personality, so he went around assuring people that this is all slanderous, falsehood, radical Jane Kelly, blah, blah. Uh, and spent, uh, I can recall at least a long, a solid year of dismissing all these concerns. After the article? After the article. Wow. And you, you did you talk with him? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Michael, my boy. Uh, That's what he said to you. <laughs> he invited me to breakfast, too. Uh, the point being, though, he, he was a man of stature. Uh, and he had the personality to go with that. He, I, I, I'm assuming you don't get to be a bishop if you're a lightweight. Uh, so it was hard for, I think, the average person, most people. They, first of all, you don't want to believe this stuff. No, it's so difficult. Thieving priests and sexual molestation. I mean, come on. What do we... Who wants to believe that? Right. Especially a, a, a person in the community who you, you need to be able to trust. Absolutely. And they're the center of people's lives, yeah. you know, in education and spiritual um, for many people. So anyway, he, he, he did that for a year or so. And then, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, he finally reluctantly agreed to take the priest out of the Napa church. But they were treating it, it was like it was some isolated case and and sister jane had made this big deal so we're we'll do the right thing if, if, until these concerns are addressed blah 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 but i remember at the time and jane and i understood each other very well that this is much bigger now we begin to understand it this is much bigger and again things are surfacing the father gary timmons camp saint michael's the priest, there was a priest up in uh, Eureka who committed suicide because allegations were swirling around his ele uh, alleged behavior with m young men. And then it just seemed like it kind of exploded. And I remember very distinctly uh, The turmoil, it was coming down, turmoil happening. I'm having conversation with the bishop. He's in total denial, making every denial possible. And then the most incredible thing was I get a call from a Santa Rosa attorney who had been hired by the Ukiah priest. And I'm having this conversation saying, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. I thought she was calling, she was defending the priest had been unjustly accused or something to that effect. 
And I just couldn't piece this together. And finally, she said, I no, actually, I'm suing Bishop Zeman on behalf of the priest. And I said, I'm not sure what you're telling me. And she said, well, uh, you need to try to dig a little deeper and do a little more because ultimately, as it turns out, the lawsuit that she was talking about, the priest, she filed on behalf of the priest against Bishop Zeman, in effect, alleging he had blackmailed the priest into sex. The most... uh, here we have young men and molestation issues going on around patients. And all of a sudden, I'm saying, are you saying that the Bishop of Santa Rosa took this guy and said, I'm not going to turn you into police? I could, but I'm not going to, in return for sex? And that, in fact, was what it was about. He had taken the priest under his proverbial wing, put him, reassigned him to Napa, and then demanded that he engage in sex. And they did. Whoa, whoa. The bishop and the priest in sex. So. (laughs) One of the most incredible. Gobsmacked. So, okay, this was in the early 2000s now. I remember reading some of the coverage in the Press Democrat researching for this show about the the priest, the the bishop denying the allegations. And these are articles in 2002 to 2005. Whatever became of of the priest's lawsuit? The priest, the Diocese of Santa Rosa paid the priest $500,000. And he went back to Mexico. And he was defrocked, I guess they call it. He was no I'm not even a, a sure. Priest. That question was raised any number of times about not only Jorge Hume but other priests. If if these if it's proven that these priests are engaged in this, why aren't they being defrocked? Mm-hmm. The Catholic hierarchy had a, put a spin on it that I can't even begin to explain. So in some cases, I think there were, but I do know in Father Jorge Hume's case, he wasn't. He received his $500,000 settlement, and he went home to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And then what happened to Bishop Zeman? Well, another incredible story, as this is all crashing. The crash is happening. And I've been now covering it. I'm pretty engaged in it, and I'm pretty aware. Right. You're consistently writing articles oh, about yeah, this. Oh, yeah, for a year and a half, two years. The it, secrecy is over. It's, it's, this is much bigger than any of us thought of, including Sister Jane. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all, we're all kind of going. You, it was unbelievable, actually. And the top by Bishop having sex with the errant priest. I mean, Hello. Uh, But what happened was even stranger in many ways, and I've never, uh, personally, I've never been able to forgive the church. I learned that the bishop, the Archdiocese of San Francisco ultimately is the ultimate 
in charge of the Diocese of Santa Rosa, the, the Catholic of Northern California. Mm-hmm. I learned that the Archdiocese of, Calif- of San Francisco not only was aware and knew and had Bishop Zeman's confession for a year. When I, I learned this information, I finally call, I finally was able to reach the attorney for the, the archdiocese, and I said, it's my understanding, ABC. And the gentleman said, do you have a fax number? Uh, we'll get back to you in five minutes. The most astounding thing, the fax beeps five minutes later, and I'm thinking, you know, it's one more layer of bureaucratic something. It's a letter of resignation from Bishop Zeman that he had written a year ago. They had known, and the gentleman's agreement was that until it became public, he could remain Bishop of Santa Rosa. So he sat there. The system knew the truth of these matters, and they allowed him to remain as Bishop of Santa Rosa for a year. And then as soon as I, the press Democrat, pushed the button, unknowingly, but we pushed the button, you're done, Bishop. You have to resign. Within five minutes of your phone call. Yes. And then he went to a treatment center in Pennsylvania and then ended up ultimately living uh, in a monastery. He kept his title. Bishop? Bishop. Wow. They didn't remove his title, and he ended up in a monastery in um, Arizona, I believe it was, and he ultimately eventually died there uh-huh. uh, because he had had some health issues. But it was just this no... It was cover-up, it was lies, deception, cover-up. From bottom to top. And all the worst, it's heartbreaking. Because here, here, see, here it is. I'm finding myself talking about the institutional corruption. And what we really have are hundreds of... Dozens, hundreds of young men. And part of my story, I guess what I really want to say, because I'll probably never be able to forget it, is I'm sitting down and interviewing these young men. And they range, you know, they were 10 years old to 18. And it was just this horrific stories of family, friend, the priest taking them on camping trips, I mean, let's face it, if you know anything about Catholicism up until now, I'm sure, but it was the, the priest was the center. Who would ever possibly think that a priest, that so many priests were doing so much of this? And I can say from my own personal experience of, um, I quit drinking about 15 years ago so I know a little bit about what they call recovery process and and what makes people tick and I cannot tell you how many times I've said in these recovery type meetings 
and heard these young men struggle to tell their story about and a lot of, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, uh, Alicia, and I don't want to go off here, but, you know, everybody uses the term pedophile, and rightly so. There are shocking and disturbing cases involving pedophile. But my experience in the Diocese of Santa Rosa was that by the largest number of men molested, or of sexual age, of puberty, they, they had come to sexual maturity because the the people engaging them, they wanted an active sexual partner. Yeah. Well, I think any guy out there listening to this understands, you know, you're 12, 13, 14, yeah, you, you, a lot of things are going on in your body and in your head, but the last thing you know about is... yeah. So it was the cheap thrills. I think the term, if I recall, was people say sexualizing. Mm -hmm. You're taking a child and sexualizing them. Yeah. And it's a horrible thing to do. That has lifelong consequences for the people who endured it. And many of them are coming forward, um, and there are statute of limitation obstacles for them. But given the the three-year window... Many people, 130 people just in this diocese have come forward with formal claims. Um, I wonder, were, were you ever able to get sort of a big picture of what was going on in the region, how many priests were involved, how many victims? If I recall correctly, we're talking eight or ten priests. Uh, that may not sound like a lot, but all you have to do is really think about it. Uh, mm -hmm. There are usually in these smaller towns a, a, a priest or two at most, for example, in the Ukiah. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a, an errant priest in Ukiah, Eureka and Petaluma, uh, the numbers add up real yeah. quick. Well, and what about um, the sort of legacy of sister Jane Kelly. And so she knew something was wrong. She went to her superiors in the church. She was rebuffed. And then ultimately she came to you to publicize what was going on in sort of in desperation, I guess, because she yes. wasn't being listened to. Um, what happened to her after the extent? I don't even know if we know the full extent, but certainly we have an idea now that this was huge epidemic and that it was being uh, being enabled by by clergy from the bottom to the very very top in the Catholic Church and um, what how did she react to all of this as a woman of deep faith who had been involved in the parish for you know twenty five years at this point and you know what what happened to her? Well, she's a remarkable again. She's a remarkable woman and. Um... She did have her one moment. I want to tell this quickly. Uh, the Archbishop Leveda out of San Francisco came up to kind of wave his finger at St. Mary's people and tell them to stop being so noisy and mm. nasty and settle down and we'll take care of this. But she was greeted by Sister Jane, and there's a classic Press Democrat photograph. The church was packed. People were in an really angry with the church leadership. Understandably. And the church was packed. He comes marching in with his entourage in full regalia. 
and his greeted by Sister Jane, who they are having a conversation, and obviously it escalated quite quickly because there's the photograph of Jane waving her finger in the Archbishop's face. Now, we all applaud, those of us who were there, hundreds, she was given a standing ovation. I mean, the people, St. Mary's typically or traditionally has been kind of a conservative Catholic parish. Uh, it was a moment that I didn't even expect to see of a standing ovation for this nun. Uh, and, of course, I don't have to tell you, the Archbishop was furious. And yeah. so within the church hierarchy, Jane was shunned. Uh, she was labeled a rabble-rouser and, and all the other nasty things that one could say about uh, activists. But Jane... The good news here is that Jane's honesty and integrity, she won the hearts of the people. And I don't think people have ever forgotten. They may disagree with her politics. They may not sure anything about her liberal theology, so-to-called liberal theology. But she won the hearts of the people and the respect of the people. And that's, I think, when she finally she became so... a. Uh, her health conditions and her aging, she returned to the, she's a member of the presentation uh, convent in San Francisco. And she returned there finally in, I believe, uh, 2018. So very recently, four Very years recently. Ago. She's still alive. She's alert. Uh, I have her contact number. We stay in minimal contact. She must be in her 90s now. She is. And she's... But she's alert. Uh, Martin Bradley here, uh, who's known Jane from the very beginning, uh, he had told me the other day that she still is able to receive visitors, uh, although she's bedridden now. But what a remarkable person. And she was able to go home, so to speak, to San Francisco. Uh, so she's still in the church? Yes. Because there was some coverage a few years back that she had left. She had told the order the order had suggested that perhaps at the end of all this uproar and fear that perhaps she should return and lead a little more quiet life. Uh, In San Francisco. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, at, that seems unlikely that she no. would lead it. And she refused. She, she ended up just saying to the order, uh, no, I'm not ready to come back. But ultimately she did. And, and, and she did return about, uh, well, it'd be four or five years ago. Uh, and, of course, bless the sisters at the convent, they happily took her in and are caring for her and giving her the end of life that she well deserves. Uh, but she's fiercely independent and an absolutely darling woman, and I used to have a whiskey or two with her, and she's marvelous. She's Irish, you know. <laughs> Sister Jane Kelly. Yes. That's not a surprise. No, she's just delightful. Uh, and uh, Teresa, she used to join us for dinner conversation. She is one of those people that you could not wait for Sister Jane to come and sit down at the dinner table because it was fascinating on virtually any subject. Wow. So, okay. So I think that when we think about the Catholic Church, women like Sister Jane Kelly maybe aren't the first 
thing that comes to mind. They should be. So <laughs> talk more about that. It's a huge, huge institution with a range of people in it. And it's not just conservative. You know, we hear so much about the sexual abuse scandal um, and we hear about, you know, the horrors of it. But there's also the Catholic Church also does a lot of community service. Like you said, Sister Jane Kelly started Plowshares with Martin Bradley in 1980 here in Ukiah that serves our local yeah. indigent and homeless populations. Um, and that's coming from her faith. Uh, with the bankruptcy if, by the Santa Rosa Diocese, there was some question about what services would be impacted by that. And, and whether or not the, you know, the social services that the church provides would somehow be affected or undermined by that. I, I'm, uh, Alicia, unclear of how all this might came down. I know uh, just a few things. I know in the case of St. Mary's School, for example, right. uh, in Ukiah, it, it's supported not by the church, but also by a found. There's a St. Mary's School Foundation, and the local people over the years have have contributed. They have the big annual Mardi Gras event. The point being the school's foundation is very critical, and that's under local control. They made sure that the Diocese of Santa Rosa could not tap in to that money. So I suspect that's true in individual parishes throughout uh, Northern California, That, especially in light of what came down that they took step financial safeguards to make sure that locally the services were there. How that's flipped, I'm unsure about how Plowshares funding functions. I know there's a lot of volunteer. I know there's a lot of contributions. But I do know the church has some role in that. I'm just not clear how that might affect it. I suspect that this money, to be honest with you, is my understanding is the diocese office in Santa Rosa is like a big bank in one sense, but it's their money. Uh, I don't know how much Ukiah would be affected by a bankruptcy, but you and I know that bankruptcies are problematic any way you look at them. So I'd like to think that the St. Mary's School in Ukiah and Plowshare Activity, those good local functions will be able to continue mm -hmm. no matter what some bankruptcy action is. But but it's problematic. Somebody has to fill the gap. Ultimately, someone has to fill yeah, the gap. Yeah, somebody's got to pay the victims. Yes. Um, and in the bankruptcy, then the bankruptcy, the the I don't know what the name of the person who does the bankruptcy, but whoever is you know looking at the finances and making the decisions with with the diocese about where the the resources are going to go. Now, besides a court awarding damages, now it's going to be a financial calculation through the bankruptcy about how much each uh, victim Absolutely. will receive, and that just you know that that's hard to swallow. It's that kind of limited, limiting uh, the option. I don't know how you put, uh, you know, it's a tough situation. Yeah. How do you put a dollar amount on the damage? I, I don't know. But I do know that people who have been damaged have very right to have their cases aired. And I'm pretty damn convinced that the church has done everything for 20 years not to address those concerns. Yeah. 
So there's this is where we are. Uh, you know the, the the church announcement was suggesting oh the the state opened the door to and we're now being flooded. Right. And there's nothing new here. All of this they've had plenty of time. They've known the priests involved. They've known the complaints involved. This has been going on for some time, and frankly, I just think they've been dragging their feet, and I think bankruptcy is a way for them to ultimately try to avoid. All right, well, looking back, let's wrap up. Now we've got just a few minutes left. Looking back at the sort of the, the larger impact of this story, your coverage, Sister Jane Kelly and her courage, you know, what are you left with now as we are looking you know, I don't know if it's solved. I don't know if the church has effectively eliminated this kind of thing or if they've taken steps or, you know, but but how do you feel about it looking back at, at your role in it all and, and how this all unfolded? Well, I, I, I think for everyone involved, but I personally, it's been a huge disappointment. I, I, I can't say I was a man of great faith but uh, I believed in the church. I believed in the rituals. Uh, I raised my sons as Catholics, boys, until they, of course, told me no way. Uh, Aw, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point being, it's disheartening uh, because I honestly and truly believe to this day that we, there's a spiritual vacuum, vacuum in our lives. For me, the church, the Catholic Church, I, I was able to fill that vacuum in some many ways through the church and its history and ritualism. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't feel that much anymore. Um, I, I suppose there's the old saying, you know, give me a, give me a boy until he's five. Give me, a, he'll be a, always a Catholic. Uh huh. And so I feel that I, I can't quite imagine identifying myself much anyway, but it's with disappointment, with sadness, and more importantly, uh, maybe it's my role as a reporter, but having the one-on-one -on -one over an extended period of time, listening to the stories of these young men, it's just crushing. It really stays with you. And it just angers me at church leaders who do not understand the depth of what's gone on here. Mm -hmm. They owe, they owe these people. Well, Mike Janella, Santa Rosa press Democrat, legacy reporter, I guess, legendary reporter. Thank you for coming in. I mean, it's so wonderful to be able to hear this story of sister Jane Kelly from you, who was, friends with her and who worked closely with her and who knew her well and was there for every step of the way. I mean, it's a terrible story, but it's important that we remember and that we remember what kind of impact one very, very brave person can make. Absolutely. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Mike. And uh, I'm Alicia Bales. This is Byline Mendocino. Thank you for listening this morning. And I'll be back with you in two weeks. I guess I'll be here on the 30th, close to New Year's Eve, with another edition of Byline Mendocino. Next week, it's going to be Joy LeClaire and Forthright Radio in this hour from 9 to 10 a.m. Um, once again, thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the rest of your morning. Take heart. It will get better
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. We'll have reasons.